Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, January 6th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Omicron. Of course, it is dominating all of our lives, and we invite Dr. Craig Spencer to tell us what he's seeing in New York City emergency rooms. Then it's a new year, so what's ahead for biotech? We preview what to expect this year, starting with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, starting virtually on Monday. We begin with a look at the last couple weeks in biotech, but first a word from our sponsor. Over 1.5 million changes happened in clinical trials in 2021 alone. Of those, only 8% were relevant events to people working in the life sciences industry. If you work in investment, strategy, or competitive intelligence, separating the relevant from the irrelevant can be hugely time-consuming. That's where Stat Trials Pulse comes in. Using proprietary machine learning and editorially-driven algorithms, we sort through all those millions of events in real time to surface the ones that are most relevant to you. Built by AI company Applied XL and vetted by STAT's national biotech team, STAT Trials Pulse will help you find newsworthy data before it becomes a headline. Try it out for your first four weeks free. If you like what you see, enjoy a special introductory rate available through February 2022. Learn more at statnews.com slash trialspulse. We've been off for a couple weeks now. Um, what did you do over the holidays? And uh, did anybody was anybody able to keep their plans? Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Thank you. I kept my plans in that my plans had been to stay home, which I executed uh, to a T. So, well, there you go. You know, we uh, dramatically scaled back our plans. Not that we had big plans to start with, but certainly kind of just kept a very low profile, stayed at home, mostly to avoid the the O, the Omicron uh, contagion that is now engulfing everybody that we know. Yeah. Mine was completely canceled. I was going to have a huge family Christmas gathering at our house. And um, some family got COVID and some family decided it didn't make sense to fly at the peak of Omicron or close to the peak of it. So we're going to do President's Day Christmas 2.0. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of postponing of events, I think, that are happening. So including, you know, I was supposed to be getting ready for a flight to San Francisco. I'm not doing that now. Right. And we're going to talk about J.P. Morgan uh, in another segment coming up. But I think one thing that's been really interesting about this, and I'm really looking forward to our chat with Dr. Craig Spencer about what he's seeing in hospitals. But with Omicron, the numbers are just eye popping in terms of the average daily case numbers. We're exceeding 500,000 per day on average. And that's just what's getting recorded. So it's not counting all the rapid home tests that are nearly impossible, it seems, to report to public health agencies. So there's just so much infection happening right now. But the Modeling is suggesting that we should be seeing a peak maybe in a week or two in the United States, and then we should start to see this coming down. And the severity, again, we'll hear more about this from Dr. Spencer, but it, it does appear to be less um, than previous variants. So that's good news, even though right now there's just so much disruption happening, and it's still pretty scary thinking about hospitals getting this full. Seth, watching the uh, the wastewater 
analysis, you know, oh. kind of all the viral <laughs> particles in poop that they get that get analyzed and watching that uh, chart just go off, you know, just basically blow out the top of the chart here in the oh, metro Boston area. Of words. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Should we cut that? <laughs> is Boston doing that more than other areas? Like, Seems or like is it, it just like a really active? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because like all of Boston's poop goes through one place so that they're it's it's easy for them to do it. Um, it goes to Deer Island and uh, and they've been testing it there. And so you they get this day you get this daily graph. It's in the Globe every day, and you get to see like oh wow it's and it's the the graph is truly horrifying. The world we live in. <laughs> and so Damien, I guess the other big news uh in our in our absence has been the verdict in the Elizabeth Holmes. That's right. Yeah, so Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes was found guilty of conspiracy to defraud investors at the conclusion of a 4-month trial that resulted in weeks of jury deliberation and uh the jury's inability to come to a unanimous decision on a few of those counts. But you know, the, the read through, I think, when the news came out was, I think a lot of people who were tuned into the trial, or especially people who were not, expected her to be found guilty. But I know there was some disappointment from people who perhaps read Bad Blood or had tuned into this that the guilty verdicts came on the charges of defrauding investors, which included like billionaire Betsy DeVos and other very wealthy people, but came through as not guilty on the counts of defrauding patients. And we heard testimony from patients who had gotten, you know, in one case, a faulty HIV test um, and various just kind of disturbing results from having taken Theranos's famously not very functional blood tests. And I think there was some you know, frustration and disappointment on that because defrauding the wealthy doesn't necessarily get people's blood boiling the way that, you know, defrauding a mother of three in Phoenix, Arizona does. But, you know, one of the jurors or a couple of the jurors have since spoken to the press. And basically what they said was there was such a clear through line from Holmes to these investors uh, where she said things that were not true, that she apparently knew were not true. Whereas the line from the CEO of a company to a person who basically patronizes it at a C or at a Walgreens rather in Arizona um, is a lot more meandering. And so they just didn't think that the evidence was really there. Whether that matters in the long term, I, I don't really know. I think to the extent this case matters at all is probably more about people's faith in the justice system because Elizabeth Holmes is very famous and, you know, she has long since been convicted in the court of public opinion to the extent such thing exists. So had she been entirely exonerated, I think that could have been problematic. Now we just enter the phase of in a few months, there'll be a sentencing hearing. And in a few more months, there'll be somewhere between two and 500 movies and limited series about this. And, and the whole saga continues. I guess, you know, there's been a lot of think pieces kind of written about this this week about, you know, what does this mean for Silicon Valley culture? And will this change anything? And you know, this was a company doing healthcare work. So does it have any effect on the space that we follow? Yes and no, and maybe weighted toward no. So you're right that, you know, this is a massive Silicon Valley-based healthcare fraud that, as we mentioned before, has captured so much attention. But as a lot of people have pointed out, the people who invested in Theranos are not necessarily the, the VCs that we know and have emotions about perhaps, um, whether in biotech or even in tech. It was kind of a, a motley crew of, of, of famous wealthy people. And likewise, you know, the, the board, of course, of these like octogenarian 
um, famous men. So I feel like it's become kind of a cautionary tale. But when you talk to people in that world, they'll say that it's it's an outlier. Like like yes, Silicon Valley is famous for um, you know stretching the truth, wishful thinking, and hubris, and all of the things that we're familiar with. But Theranos was just frankly lying, and I think that's a line that so clearly they crossed that I don't know how much of a ripple effect this will have. I think that whole field has been really ready to wash its hands of this experience and is probably more miffed that they're having to deal with reporters asking them, what does this mean? Um, and just kind of want to move on with what they do. So Damien, now that the verdict has been rendered, what's next? So as I mentioned before, there will be, it's not yet scheduled, but there will be a sentencing hearing for Holmes and it's almost certain that she will appeal that conviction. But maybe more interestingly, scheduled for February is the trial of Sonny Balwani, who is, of course, Theranos' former number two under Holmes and her former romantic partner. He faces pretty much identical charges uh, of fraud in, in his role at Theranos. It'll be a different jury. Um, they will be, of course, tasked to consider only the evidence in the trial. But one would assume that uh, the Holmes verdict does not necessarily bode well for Balwani. But it'll be interesting to kind of contrast what the perception is, you know, versus, you know, she was obviously the face of the company. We've come to learn that he was very, very powerful behind the scenes. And so I don't know that that trial might provide an interesting contrast to to what we've seen with Holmes. But will there be documentaries made about it? Presumably not, although, you know, one can never know. Three days ago, on January 3rd, just after 11 p.m., Dr. Craig Spencer tweeted that he was just leaving the emergency room in New York City, where he said he'd seen a stunning amount of COVID. But he also pointed out that there were major differences between now and when that same area where he was working had been converted into a makeshift ICU during the first COVID wave. As Omicron has turned all of our lives upside down in just a month, we wanted to talk with Dr. Spencer about what he's seeing at the center of it all. He's director of global health and emergency medicine at Columbia University and also teaches public health. And he joins us now. Dr. Spencer, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've seen hospitalizations start to dramatically spike, but we also have consistently heard that Omicron causes milder disease than previous variants of the virus. So what does it look like in the emergency room where, where you're working? Well, it's important to know that, you know, we've been through multiple waves of COVID here in New York City, across the country and across the world. And each wave has looked a little different. In March 2020, you know, it felt like walking into the apocalypse every time that I went to work. Last winter was certainly better. We had more tricks, more experience. We had things like steroids, other things that, you know, prevented as many patients from dying. You know, right now, taking care of COVID is quite different because we're not having to intubate people. We have different tools. We have, you know, high flow oxygen. We have, you know, on the horizon, oral antivirals, which should also help keep people out of the hospital. And so the severity of illness is not nearly as bad and, you know, all the indications that Omicron is milder seem to be playing out in the patients that I take care of. But my concern is that even if Omicron is, you know, half as likely to put you in the hospital as Delta or other previous variants, we're seeing two to three to four to five times as many cases on a daily basis, meaning that you're likely going to get, as we've been seeing, a pretty big uptick in cases. And so what's the breakdown of like vaccinated, boosted, unvaccinated people in terms of, you know, kind of the disease that you're seeing in the emergency department? That's a really good question. Um, I wrote about this maybe a week or two ago because after a good number of shifts since we started seeing more COVID patients, it became 
pretty clear, um, and it fits quite quite concordant with you know the data we've seen from the CDC from nearly every Department of Health. It's that the unvaccinated are disproportionately way more likely to have that kind of classic COVID of shortness of breath, needing supplemental oxygen, needing to be admitted to the hospital for a longer period of time. The people that I've been seeing that have been vaccinated and have received a booster are, you know, significantly more likely to, you know, present with mild symptoms, maybe a sore throat, maybe a little fatigue, maybe a little fever. And then there's kind of an array of symptoms in between um, for people that have been maybe vaccinated, not boosted, or people that just got one dose of the J&J. But it's pretty clear that there are polar opposites in terms of severity for people who've been fully vaccinated, have received two or three doses, and those that have received none. Are your kids in a nearby room? <laughs> yeah, my one-year-old. He, he has been removed from the building. Aww. Yeah, I keep saying, you know, it doesn't feel like, it's not March 2020, but let me tell you, it sure the hell feels like March 2020 in my household. <laughs> kids at home trying to work. I hear that. So, you know, hearing this, it, it sounds really reassuring, um, particularly for folks who are vaccinated and boosted and, and aren't immunocompromised. I mean, there are a lot of folks for whom we should still be worried, even if they have as much protection as they can get. But... How concerned should we be about these trends that you're seeing when we see these hospitalization numbers spiking, but we're hearing perhaps they're not as severe in the hospital? Should we be thinking this is good news? In a sense, it is good news, right? If you're vaccinated, the likelihood that you'll see me in the emergency department or that you'll need oxygen or need to be admitted is remarkably low. Um, The problem is, is that for a long time, we've been thinking about this through an individual lens. After two years, everyone is thinking about what is the risk to them? What's the likelihood that we can have our birthday party or go see friends and family over the holidays? But this is still a collective problem that we need to manage collectively now, I think, more than ever. The reason is, is that, you know, right now what we're seeing is a dramatic uptick in the number of hospitalizations. We've already passed the peak from last winter And there's a good chance that we are going to reach a record number of hospitalizations, the highest number of hospitalizations we've seen in this pandemic in the coming weeks and in months. Every single one of those hospitalizations puts more stress on a system that is already stressed. And remember that we entered this recent wave with more people in the hospital than we had entered the Delta wave. Now, not just COVID patients, but non-COVID patients as well people who had put off routine care for a long period of time, either for fear of coming into the hospital and getting COVID or because their clinics were closed or maybe their providers retired, whatever it may be. And what we're seeing now is that there's just a steady increase in the number of patients, not just for COVID, but also for Omicron, even if it makes it less likely that you're going to be hospitalized. Well, you kind of touched on this just now, but I was curious, you know, there's something of a debate going on about the difference between hospitalizations for COVID, which is, say, people who get COVID-19 and as a result have to be hospitalized, and hospitalizations with COVID, which is to say people who hospitalize for whatever malady and then test positive. Is that distinction important in your mind? I mean, is that something we should kind of hold in our heads when we see some of these numbers? Right. You know, this has been kind of the bugaboo for the past two years, right? It's been people who have said that people died with COVID versus for COVID. And we're seeing this, you know, kind of discussion or debate or or, or really distinction come up again. And I think, sure, it is important in that, you know, someone who is coming in with severe COVID, for example, is a huge strain on resources. It takes an hour or more to resuscitate someone who needs to be intubated, who is unstable, and we need to, you know, stabilize their blood pressure, whatever it may be. 
But when it comes to the kind of the, the for versus with, w- regardless um, of why you're coming into the hospital, you still take up the same amount of space in a hospital bed. And right now, it's hospital workers and healthcare providers and hospital space that is, again, a limiting factor. So, Dr. Spencer, I was curious, like, what your work life is like right now. You know, you've been doing this for, for two years. Like, walk us through what a day in the emergency department is like right now. Yeah, right now, you know, generally our shifts are anywhere from 8 to 12 hours. When I walk into work, you know, I'm already coming in completely garbed in an N95, um, come in, sign in, clean down the computer with bleach wipes and get to work. Um, it will involve kind of cycling through a bunch of patients, you know, the majority of which still um, either, you know, don't have COVID or don't have, you know, a significant um, illness or severe illness from COVID. Although in the my past couple shifts, you know, the the likelihood of COVID has increased dramatically, so much so that a couple of days ago, as you pointed out, you know, I came home from work and was reflecting and it seemed like everyone had COVID. Now it wasn't everyone, but it sure felt like everyone because even patients that I didn't necessarily think were going to have COVID tested positive. You know, older patients who were too weak to walk, couldn't get out of bed, um, didn't know what that exacerbating factor was. Sometimes it's a urinary tract infection. Sometimes it's pneumonia. But for them, it was COVID. And it, it made it a lot harder for me to find a spot for them in the hospital, a lot harder for them, of course, because now they needed to be hospitalized. Much like kind of earlier in the pandemic, I am afraid to, to take off my mask, my N95, at any point. Um, only, be, you know, not because I'm necessarily concerned that I'm going to individually be, you know, severely ill with COVID if I get infected. But if I do test positive, that impacts my family. Um, that also impacts my coworkers. If I'm sidelined for five or seven or 10 days, that means my friends and colleagues need to find the space and pick up my shifts. And right now, that is one of the limiting factors. We have a bunch of healthcare workers at nearly every single hospital and healthcare institution that are being sidelined with COVID. That puts more stress on the providers that do pick up more shifts, that makes patients wait longer for their medications or to see a provider, and it has a domino effect on the whole system. How is it for you just sort of psychologically um, still going through this and during our third year of the pandemic? Did you expect back in March 2020 that in January 2022, this would be happening? And how do you how do you keep going? It's a good question. I don't know that I thought, you know, two or three years later, would we still be doing this? I think I was too exhausted and healthcare providers were too focused on that moment to really think more than a shift or two in front of us. Um, but yeah, two years later and, and still managing this disease, even if it presents differently and isn't causing the same stress, um, on uh, on our patients is still really stressful for providers. It's it's exhausting. You know, I I see the look on my colleagues' face. I see what this represents for our residents. You know, many of whom have only known the COVID era during their training. Um, it impacts their education. It impacts you know what they see, what they do, and how they'll be prepared to work independently after their training, after their residency. Um, so how do we keep going? I, I think that 
as healthcare workers, you know, we were the people before the pandemic that showed up to work regardless, right? Sniffles don't feel well, exhausted, worked overnight, worked 36 shifts. And, you know, it didn't matter. You were going to come to work because that's what we did. A lot of us went into this profession to help and we're willing to do that at all costs. Um, but over the past few years, you know, I've seen so many people so exhausted, many of them leaving the profession, many of them trying to find ways out. Um, and many of them, you know, still on the front lines, but but worn out. Um, and so it is hard. The you know the ominous Omicron arrival um, gives all of us pause and makes us, yeah, worried how much longer this is going to last. Well, so on that point, and with the note that it is perhaps uh, unwise, and 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 there's not much time to look beyond the next few shifts into the future. What is your expectation for for 2022? What do you think the path out of the pandemic is crossing our fingers as to there not being another variant that forces us back into the same situation? I think the path has to come through getting more people here vaccinated. We know that people are going to continue to be exposed to Omicron, to Delta, whatever it may be after. We'll still see more people sick. We'll still see more breakthroughs. We will still see more waves, although hopefully they'll be smaller, maybe more localized. Um, but let's not forget that this pandemic isn't happening just here in the United States, right? There are still many countries that have not yet seen the scourge of Omicron, that have not yet experienced its incredible transmissibility. And in many of those places, they're even less prepared than we were and than we are to manage a surge. Most of those places, places have not yet had access to the same uh, supplies of vaccine, don't have access to you know, the oral antivirals or the other things that have helped us decrease mortality here in this country and better manage the pandemic. And so that's what I worry about. I worry about, you know, when this wave, the tsunami crosses across the U.S. and we are on the backside of this, hopefully sometime in the next, you know, few weeks or months, it will just be beginning in many places of the world that are even less prepared because of global vaccine inequity. And we know that this is a risk for the emergence of future variants that can undermine the efficacy of our vaccines. We know that this impacts the ability to run vaccination campaigns for other illnesses, for measles, to get people into clinics for malaria, tuberculosis. The domino impact on the system because of uh, COVID and especially because of Omicron, I think is still uh, a looming disaster that we're not focused enough on. Dr. Spencer, thanks for what you do and, and thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me. this time of year, we are gearing up to fly across the country to San Francisco, check into extremely overcrowded and overpriced hotels, and see everybody in the biotech industry in the span of about three days. Uh, however, this year, uh, just like last year, is different. We're doing it virtually, um, but we're still covering the conference. Um, Adam, which presentations are you most interested in listening to? Yeah, you know, this year, for the second year in a row, I guess, I, I will be uh, attending, quote unquote, JP Morgan in my, uh, in my sweatpants and sweatshirt. So, hey. Lovely. Um, but to get to your question, Meg, you know, look, I, what would a read out loud podcast be without <laughs> mentioning Biogen? So, you know, what presentation am I most interested in seeing? It will be on Monday when uh, Biogen CEO Michelle Vunatsos, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming he's going to be presenting uh, on behalf of Biogen on Monday. 
uh, you know, w- we get to hear him speak, you know, for the first time in, in several months, certainly since kind of a lot of our reporting has come out and we get to hear um, what his outlook for the company is for the next year and the future. And obviously, there are a lot of questions that have been raised about the future of Biogen, his future uh, as the CEO of Biogen and kind of what the company does to uh, maneuver itself out of the mess that Aduhelm has become. So uh, that is definitely a presentation that uh, I know I will be tuning into, and I'm sure Damien will be tuning into as well. How about you, Damien? Other than Biogen, <laughs> um, I think uh, I think the mRNA companies will be interesting. Moderna, back when it was private, used to use J.P. Morgan as a big launch pad for you know, telling us a lot of information that we all desperately wanted to hear and, and that um, that we didn't know. Now that they're public, they kind of have to legally uh, say important things as they happen. But for both Moderna and BioNTech, I think there's this general curiosity, not concern, of like, what do they have next? We've seen clearly that their vaccines for COVID-19 uh, are both, you know, clinically incredibly powerful and financially incredibly lucrative. But, you know, Wall Street is a very what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of place. And so we've gotten some clues about that. BioNTech uh, and Pfizer said they're next going to go after shingles um, with a vaccine, an mRNA vaccine, which is kind of interesting because you know there is a vaccine now made by GlaxoSmithKline called Shingrix that clears about $2 billion a year or so um, and is very effective but is famously kind of a tough hang. Once you get it, it kind of knocks you out. And so the bar to clear for Pfizer and BioNTech would be to have a shingles vaccine that is as good, if not better, but is less reactogenic. But as I think everyone on this podcast and many people around the world have experienced, mRNA vaccines are not exactly uh, benign when you get them. So that'll be an interesting topic of conversation. Same thing with Moderna, which has a pretty wide variety of projects in play with mRNA. And I'm just curious to see, one, what they say, but also what the reactions are as as kind of the, the future of these companies comes into focus. So Meg, you're you know you you spend uh, the JPM week talking to all the big uh, CEOs of pharma and biotech. So what kind of questions? What do you what do you think about asking folks? Yeah, you know, so a lot of these folks are involved in COVID. You know, we've got the CEO of Pfizer uh, joining us bright and early Monday morning. We've got Gilead CEO joining us. So you know. I guess just talking with a lot of these folks about sort of balancing the COVID business and what they expect to come there with, you know, the rest of the business and the drivers. And I think also one thing that's just really helpful when you literally do back-to-back interviews for two days with the CEOs of the biggest companies in, in the industry is you, you really get a sense of kind of the vibe and like what they're thinking and how they're thinking about it. And I remember um, back in 2020, the last time we were all together for this conference, being surprised by how little they seemed worried about drug pricing uh, reform. I mean, it, they turned out to be right, but I think not for the the reason anybody expected. I mean, the pandemic <laughs> changed everything and distracted everyone. Um, but we've been hearing such stronger language from the industry uh, being worried about what's going to happen with drug pricing in the last, you know, six months or so. Um, so, I think it'll be interesting to hear how they're thinking about that. And also, it's just been, it was a really tough year for biotech last year. Um, so to kind of hear what the the vibe is um, will be helpful. And also, some of these companies have so much cash. And I know that there's a lot of 
hope oh, yeah. from biotech investors that they're, the big companies are going to spend it on the little companies. So trying to get a sense of what's to come there. Yeah, the whole M&A question is, you know, obviously that's always a big deal, right? I mean, everyone wants, wants to ask the CEOs about, you know, their business development plans and their M&A plans. And, and you're right, Meg. I mean, I think I saw a Jeff Porges note, you know, he's the analyst at um, SVB Lyric, who said that by the end of the year, like top biotech and top pharma companies are going to have something like $400 billion in cash to spend. And, you know, a lot of those companies have, you know, existing drugs. And uh, I know Pfizer's mentioned, Bristol-Myers has mentioned, Amgen has mentioned. They have drugs that, you know, are blockbusters for them today that are going off patent and th- and that revenue needs to be replaced. And so, you know, that obviously fuels the speculation that we will see more M&A, more deals in, in 2022. Um, you know, those predictions uh, obviously are always kind of famously off base. And, you know, we sort of oftentimes kind of go into the year thinking that there'll be a lot of M&A and then there's not. Um, but it definitely this year, I feel like sentiment wise, people are feeling like, you know, structurally, there's enough there um, to kind of to, to have an environment where there will be more deals. I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, seeing that, I was reminded of uh, J.P. Morgan 2016, which, if you recall, this was a very different time. But Hillary Clinton had tweeted about drug pricing and Valiant Pharmaceuticals and biotech stocks were down and we were all going into this year. And it was a very similar narrative. Biotech is down so much that inevitably these companies will get taken out. And, you know, Adam, as you mentioned, that was one of those predictions that didn't exactly come true. And I think one of the phenomena that prevented it was that just because a company is cheap doesn't mean that the company thinks it deserves to be that cheap, by which I mean a stock might be down and so you think, oh, they'll be taken out. But for all we know, and in quite often, I think, CEOs and boards think, well, every offer we get is a lowball offer. We are worth more than this. And so it'll be interesting to see if the combination of biotech stocks being down and pharma having, as you mentioned, just this like unprecedented amount of cash actually kind of breaks that mold and we see more transactions actually take place. It's very possible, but it's, I think it's worth considering the history. And Meg, you know, you mentioned mood and sentiment. You know, that's always like a big part of the whole JPM week and experience of, you know, and kind of coming into next week, coming into the conference. I think mood is bad. You know, <laughs> stocks are down. You know, people are you know, obviously it's COVID related as well. You know, we're not going out there. And I think everyone is just kind of feeling like they're in a funk. And it'll be interesting to see sort of if the mood changes. And obviously that a lot of that has to do with news flow and whether we see a lot of deals or any kind of like really interesting news happenings next week. And we'll be talking about whether the mood of biotech has changed after JPM. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you'll be wearing for J.P. Morgan next week. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.